Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Nitsan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, sure. I'll be hi. Nice to meet you. And thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure being here. Um, my name is Nitsan, and I'm a PhD student at the Consciousness and Psychopathology Laboratory under the supervision of Dr. Mirit Safardudet at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. Um, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker and a mother of three. Can I ask how you got, because um, I came across your research from maladaptive daydreaming. So I'm interested in how you came across the term maladaptive daydreaming. Um, so through my master's degree, um, Professor Eli Sommer was my teacher and I was really interested in his work. Uh, he also a very, very uh, important researcher in the field of trauma and association. And I was working with uh, traumatized women and I, I came across a lot of his work and I asked him to join his research. And he said, oh, that's so nice, but I'm not into this right now. <laughs> and I'm researching maladaptive daydreaming. So if you are interested, you're invited, but that's what I do now. And I thought, well, if that's interesting for Professor Eli Zomer, then I'm in. <laughs> so this is kind of how, how I got rolled into this area. And ever since it's, uh, it's, it's making me very interested and I really like researching this, uh, this phenomenon. Now, were you, so you were pretty open to maladaptive daydreaming when you first heard about it. I, I find that with like other people, it's kind of, a, they're a little bit hesitant to look into maladaptive daydreaming or talk about it. They kind of go to something else, but it's interesting. You kind of accepted just because Ellie Sommer was going into it, which he's done incredible work on, but I've noticed all the research studies, a lot of stuff gets attributed to him. I mean, I think he even coined the term maladaptive daydreaming. Uh, yeah, he definitely did in 2002. And I am not sure I was that acceptive as I was very curious. And it wasn't like, yeah, whatever he says, that's the truth. But it was, that sounds like there is something very interesting about that and that we have a lot of things to explore about that and maybe to find out new things. And that was very interesting for me to be able to participate in a study which is completely new and, and nobody ever searched about it before. So I was very open and through like the process, there were times that I was like, is that a real thing? Are you sure? And that was until I met people with my adaptive daydreaming and then starting to realize, oh my God, this is so true. There are people that experience this exact thing and and they really do suffer from that that they 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 have a lot of trouble because of that they find it impairing to their everyday life by maybe not being too attentive to their work or to their friends or maybe kind of losing a lot of important time because they spend daydreaming rather than actually engaging in their real life so you cannot dismiss someone's distress <laughs> that easily. Now, did you, since you had past experience with trauma and people with trauma, did you think it might have been like the causation? One of the causations could be a trauma thing as well, too, like someone who has like PTSD or something of that sort. So, um, to my opinion, trauma can be a basic a basis for a ver for a variety of pathological things that might happen to a person. So, I wasn't sure if trauma is the only thing. And, and the more I was exploring, I realized that there are people who experience very negative uh, events through their life that they uh, they think that were um, enhancing their tendency to daydream. But not everyone, not everyone I meet uh, report of negative events that actually influence their tendency to daydream. How many people did you interview? Like were people open about speaking that they had this form of daydreaming? I would have to feel like that would be something like people just go, oh, yeah, everyone daydreams. It's like the common thing I always hear. I go, yeah, sure, people daydream, but there's also a line of it. And that's when we start heading into the maladaptive side of it, which is more intense. Yeah, definitely. You're so right. Like, uh, I guess that everyone daydreams from time to time. But the difference is between the frequency of daydreaming and how much you feel attached towards it, like how how present is that in your life and how, how much your life are centered around that daydreaming pattern? Do you feel like an inner urge to daydream? And do you feel upset when you're unable to daydream? I don't think every person that daydreams uh, feel that way. I don't think that 
every people, every person that daydreams uh, uh, find it uh, impairing to their everyday life. You can find it relaxing, you can find it like as a pause from your uh, different activities and kind of a uh, time to maybe uh, inspire creativity. So it's not have to be that way. But um, if we look at it as a continuum, like we do in psychopathology, almost in everything, like you can be sad, but if you're always sad, we might suspect you have depression. Uh, so you can see that there is a difference between people who normally daydream and people who have maladaptive daydreaming. Um, as far as my study, so through my master's degree, I um, interviewed over 100 people with maladaptive daydreaming, and now as a part of my PhD, um, I stopped counting <laughs> because um, it's a lot of interviews, uh, but it's so I'm more into the details that I'm I'm revealing rather than the numbers, but it's a lot of people. Yeah. So through your study, what were you able to find? I know it links in with attention, um, but was that your first thought when you started interviewing people? Did they all kind of have what I would say, not a disorder, but did they all have something similar when it came to some type of disorder or something like ADHD or anything? So when we, speak, when we speak about attention in reference to psychopathology, we all tend to think about ADHD, which is uh, very uh, logical to think about ADHD. Um, but when we speak about maladaptive daydreaming, so we, uh, we can see that one of its key characteristics is the fact that it is impairing your attention because you might be very, very focused on your inner fantasies and you know every detail and you can do it for hours and on. But it's like you're shifting your attention. Like if you had a flashlight, you're moving it towards the other way and and forget to do other things because of that. So your attention to what happens in your, I don't know, social event might be impaired or that you're not doing your homework at college or you're not doing your work uh, well enough or you're procrastinating it because you tend to do uh, to daydream all the time. So in one of Professor Sommers and Dr. Sokhredovic's uh, researchers, they found that over 75% of the people who were diagnosed with maladaptive daydreaming were also meeting the diagnostic criteria of the DSM for ADHD. And when you see that high rate, you, you start thinking, wait, if they all also meet the criteria for ADHD, maybe they have ADHD and not maladaptive daydream. But it is different because not all people who have ADHD experience vivid, fantastical daydreams. They can have different things that kind of distracting them. Maybe they are all occupied with the things they have to do because they feel they all the time leave things open and undone. Or maybe they just feel restless or any other reasons, but it's not typically uh, characterizing everyone who have ADHD. So in my thesis, we asked, is that gonna uh, look like that in a reverse? Like if we take people who experience ADHD and we'll check whether they have maladaptive daydreaming, would that be the same rates of 75%? And we checked that and we saw that it was definitely not how it was. Like only uh, 20% or something like that actually met the, the proposed diagnostic criteria for maladaptive daydreaming. So it's not exactly the same. So we realized that those things might be different after all and not that similar contrast. I'm guessing it would be you would fall in the category of maladaptivity. I mean, is it an experience? That's the main question. Is it something like someone learns? Like, I would feel like if you haven't really ever explored your fantasy so deeply, it only gets more intense, I think, the more times you do, at least in my experience. Um, but with ADHD, I mean, a lot of people have it without the hyperactivity. I have it with the hyperactivity. But then if I'm not able to move, I'll just be hyperactive up here. If that makes sense. And that goes right into the fantasy where that becomes a little bit more intense. And then if you tack on the moving in a fantasy, doing a repetitive motion, sliding back and forth because I can't move my body. So I'm just doing like the same repetitive movement over and over again. And that fantasy only gets a little bit more extreme. So I'm curious if it, that when you, we talk about ADHD or we talk about the prevalence, when you're able to separate the categories of ADHD and the maladaptive daydreaming, that 20%, you said it was 20% when you guys did it in reverse, that the people that were experiencing maladaptive daydreaming did, I mean, 
is there distinctive categories to be able to put someone and say that it's not just the subtype of ADHD? I mean, so, if it's, uh, there's other disorders that obviously probably experience maladaptive daydreaming. So you're right on the point. Like, how do you differentiate between the two or how can you actually differentiate? Is it a subtype of ADHD? It's, I'm a bit confused. Yes. It is a really important question to ask. So um, to kind of uh, answer that question, we need to kind of, um, I don't know, make it uh, a little easier. <laughs> so what I'm researching is the uh, thought patterns that uh, characterize people with MD, with maladaptive daydreaming, and people with ADHD. Um, typically, in the scientific research of ADHD, uh, your uh, people with ADHD are described as dreamy or preoccupied or not listening or their attention is somewhere else, right? But this is kind of uh, the effect of not listening, but it doesn't tell us where do their minds go to, right? We don't know what they're thinking of. Um, and lately we can see more and more research about the term mind wandering, which is kind of letting your thoughts roam freely and kind of jump from one thought to another without a certain course or aim. There is no guidance of the thoughts like they can spontaneously arise and and it's like it's a very free thing that happens right but uh like a, like a sandbox you know if you ever play a game or it's unlimited anything you do exactly so like there is no a specific goal to mind wandering right because it's wandering you cannot uh unify between wandering and a goal it's kind of contradicting so, uh, but in opposed to that, when you were speaking of maladaptive daydreaming, we have a very specific thought pattern, which is kind of different, right? People are also the directors and sometimes they are the actors of their scenarios, right? And they can navigate through the story. They can decide what daydream they want to daydream of and what people do they want to have in their daydream and how to end it. And if they don't like the ending, they can do it again and change it, right? So we're speaking of much more guided thoughts uh, that are coherent and they evolve. And they also have a very uh, um, a very big emotional reaction towards it, right? It's not only fragmented pictures that goes by. You can actually have an emotional reaction towards the story you're experiencing, like maybe going from feeling a little bit scared to then um, feeling very brave and then very proud of yourself for doing something very heroic, right? We have a lot of people reporting about daydreaming of being uh, uh, being involved in rescue actions or being heroes of something. So the, the emotion also changed, which is very different from just rapid thoughts that goes by. Um, so what I try to do in my research is kind of uh, differentiate the, uh, the, the, the patterns of the thought in order to kind of more understand the differences between daydreaming and mind wandering. How would you differ? How would you differentiate the pattern between someone's thoughts? So I will ask them um, uh, through like uh, directly. Uh, how does your thought looks like when I do it also when I interview people, but also through uh, online questionnaires that I give people to answer. And uh, in my study, we developed a new measurement scale that asks specifically about that. Um, I'm also I'm asking about maladaptive daydreaming and I'm asking about uh, symptoms of ADHD, but I'm also asking are your daydreams or different type of thoughts, are they scattered? Or are they continuous? I am asking people to uh, elaborate about their thought patterns, their contrast constructs. So I'm asking for straightforward, and that way I get answers. You find that there's a, I guess, with maladaptive daydreaming, if there's a certain emotion that's more pre prevalent than all the others when it comes to their thoughts, like something that either someone's worried about could create the scenario that they're thinking about or something like a deep desire that they might have. I find sometimes if I do a daydream, it's something that happens to do with something that's like popular. And I mean popular, it's like music related or something where you're in front of a bunch of people. I don't know why, because I don't like public speaking at all, despite me doing a podcast, but it's like a 
deep desire thing, I guess you could call it. I always wanted to do something music related when I was a kid. So I wonder if how many people have these fantasies can look at it from like what emotion that they're going off of, whether it's getting a new job or getting a career. I think I used the game uh, Sims. Have you ever heard of that game before? Create a little family. A lot of people do that in their own heads when they, especially when they get older, your dreams go from being a knight in shining armor to having a family, a 401k with a nice pool, an in-ground pool. That's what everybody wants. But then it's, it's a whole different thing. But a lot of that is like emotion of either a desire for something or something of that sort. It doesn't always need to be sad, but it could be something like an emotional connection. So um, we can see from uh, people's reports about maladaptive daydreaming that uh, the, the stories are usually accompanied by a positive emotion. It doesn't have to be a specific emotion like feeling happy or excited or proud or whatever, but it's a part of the um, a positive family <laughs> emotions. And not uh, it's not very recurrent that people exhibit negative emotions through their fantasies, although that also happens. Like it is likely like it's like people enjoying horror movies. So that can also happen, but it's less likely. And the themes are usually related to feeling more accepted or more loved or more successful that we can definitely uh, report of a lot of time people say that they kind of fantasize of their ideal self and this is not that enjoyable at the end of it because there becomes a gap between the ideal me and the real me and that's a hard thing to have when you're maladaptive daydreamer this gap is only getting larger the more you spend daydreaming instead of doing things in your reality to add on to that you might know this um, answer, but I'm just curious, do you think that would create more depression? You can give me your personal opinion on that one, but I have to think being sucked out of a fantasy and all usually the maladaptive daydreaming from what I've understood is that people kind of will give out on social situations. They'll do a bunch of stuff because the fantasy is sometimes better than reality. And I go, that makes reality a lot more unbearable if you really think about it, especially I would think someone with OCD could create their whole fantasy exactly how they want it and everything's perfect. And then you go kind of into the world and that's not necessarily how it works. So it could be a little bit upsetting. So it is very interesting what came first. Did the depression came first and then you decided to escape into daydreaming world or were you starting to daydream and as a result, the gap got bigger. So you got more depressed. I don't have the answer to that. Though I can, I can say that my uh, first study, um, and we found uh, a very a strong uh, correlation between uh, feeling more lonely and feeling um, having a a, a a lower self image than people who were not maladaptive daydreamers. So I don't know what came first. We did not uh, conduct any study that where we put different people in different uh, situations, ask them to daydream and then check their depression levels and or put people in depressing situations because that's unethical. But um, we can definitely see elevated levels of depression among uh, people with MD, maladaptive daydreaming. Were a lot of people that you interviewed, did they have lonesome personalities people that spend a lot of time in social isolation that's a big thing with um adhd it's social isolation um i'm just curious if you because i would think that's more time for you to be able to fantasize I, but i've never really met anybody that or heard any stories of anybody that's like super super outgoing and then they just daydream all the time oh that that's really interesting because and it sounds like maladaptive daydreaming can be contradicting to ADHD in that sense, right? If you're more extrovert, then why would you spend a lot of time daydreaming? But I guess the answer might be that daydreaming is enjoyable and it is fun and you can have a very satisfying experience if you're daydreaming of being more successful and loved and doing things you'd rather do than maybe doing your boring job, I don't know. So um, It's the dopamine that comes with it it's very rewarding. This is why people keep on doing that because it's very rewarding in short term. But in longer term, this is like a very vicious cycle of need, of doing more of that because you feel less pleasant in your reality. Um, but if I go back to your question, um, I do, I found people with maladaptive daydreaming to be more lonely. And again, it is hard to point what 
perceive what? Were they lonely so they started daydreaming more or they become more lonely because they're daydreaming more? I don't know what came first, but I can definitely say that they do experience loneliness because if you're spending more time meeting friends on your um, imagination or going to a date in your imagination because you're not sure of yourself or you're scared of criticism or you feel like it's such a mental effort to go to a date and realizing it's not for you at the end of it so you become more lonely eventually i do think that do you think more people experience with maladaptive daydreaming you think more experience people experience negative reactions towards it or more positive reactions like a comfort zone um like it's 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 a short-term relief but it's not a solution for their uh, distress i don't think like it is comforting while doing it but afterwards people describe feeling very guilty because they were procrastinating things for a long time um they also describe uh embarrassment and shame because it is hard to to admit to your loved ones that sometimes you prefer not to be with them because you prefer to be in your own fantasy world. That could be very hard for people to understand, right? If you're in a relationship and you tell your partner that you'd rather spend daydreaming than actually be with him or her on your free time, that could be even insulting in some way if you don't understand the, the mechanism and the, the psychological reason for that. And I do have people with maladaptive daydreaming tell me they have an ideal relationship in their um, daydreaming world. And that's, I think, something that is really hard to tell people around you and to expect their understanding about that. Now, you had a number of people come forward to you to do interviews. Do you think that there's probably a larger percentage of people out there that just don't feel comfortable discussing maladaptive daydreaming? It does kind of sound like when I would say something to somebody about daydreaming to get past five hours of cardio or something like that, they don't just look at me like I'm nuts, but they look at me like, you still daydream? Like it's a child's activity. And yeah, I understand it's good for children to do it, but also it's like, I think everyone has a little bit of it. Just to what point does it really stop? So um, I think people who come to my study and participated uh, do it because they want to share their experience and because I'm a stranger to them. Um, sometimes it's easier because this is my field of research. Uh, so of course I will have more empathy than someone who never heard about that or is skeptical about that. Um, so people usually are very authentic and open about their experience. And I really appreciate that because that's um, that's something that uh, like it, it's a very brave thing to do. But it's a sensitive do, thing to do. Do open their heart and and tell me a lot. And this is how I learn about maladaptive daydreaming. This is how I got my understanding of it mostly out of people who who told me about their experience and i every time i meet someone i'm i'm amazed but by, by the details about how much i'm learning from their experience and when i'm writing an article for me it's kind of the way to to give back and and expose other people to this uh distress that people are observing and kind of make this field more accessible for clinicians and people suffering from it did any of the people that you interviewed discuss about maybe having more openness to talk about it with family members or something of that sort? But since they were open about talking, it is a sensitive subject. When I mean sensitive, I mean it's very hard to reveal what you think about. If I say I dream about having superpowers or something like that, people look at you a bunch of different ways. But it is like, you know, if that's me and if it's, I don't know, an insight into who I am or what I think about or what I desire, I have no clue. But it's a sensitive subject whether it's a fantasy about life or anything like that. So I'm curious if they were open about it with you, were they, would they be open about it, maybe discussing about talking with family members just so we can educate more people around them to have more of a safety barrier for it? So it didn't just, because what you mentioned about someone like, you know, it's hard to say, hey, I'd rather be in my fantasy than be with my family. That's That hurts. That's very, very painful for whoever's on either the receiving or the giving end of that. But I'm just curious if there's going to be could we have a wall of protection with family members if people understood it more? Obviously, it has to be more accepted um, in terms of like society, the word maladaptive daydreaming. But, you know, I feel like if more people understood about it, especially family members, I would just encourage people who experience maladaptive daydream to go home and talk to a family member about it. Like, hey, check out this research and then 
maybe it'll give you some insight on what I do when I'm just staring off out a window or something. Definitely. I think the way to make people more open and understanding is give them knowledge about that. So I tend to give people my my published work and other and uh, links to other published works so they can share this with other people. Sometimes it's easier to explain through what other people wrote than actually explaining in your own words. Um, but yeah, it's hard for people sometimes to be uh, disclosed in front of family members and even their therapists because Again, this is somewhat a newly identified psychopathology, and it's not officially recognized by the ICD or the DSM. So uh, people uh, frequently say they were dismissed by their therapists, and that's really a shame because if you're open to hear about your your uh, patient's experience, you might help them better, or you might kind of search for excessive daydream and that way uh, find out more about that. Um, so yeah, definitely knowledge is the way to more power and more acceptance uh, with your surroundings. I, I do advise to people not to stay alone with their distress ever because uh, loneliness does never does never make things better. So I always say if you have someone you trust and you can share things with, do it so you won't stay alone with it. Was there anything about your study that landed in more of the fringe realm or something that just didn't didn't come up with the right amount of evidence or something that was inconclusive like the, there's no connection here at all with maladaptive daydreaming so um my study uh was trying to differentiate um mind wandering from uh, from daydreaming because those those terms are kind of big in the research uh, field and like I, I thought that maladaptive daydreaming has different uh, characteristics that are different from ADHD. And not everything that I thought was uh, inclusively, uh, was, I, didn't, I couldn't find it, like it wasn't very clear. For example, the, the, the ability to control your daydreaming is kind of a thing, is kind of a thing that we don't completely understand it. How, how much control you have over it. Because on the one hand, it can be seen as a behavioral addiction, right? Like you are addicted to fantasizing and the more you do it, the more you want to do it. But the more you do it, the more it is hindering your real life. Um, so it seems like you don't have a lot of control over it, right? But on the other hand, you do control where you do it because you won't uh, necessarily walk around or do mouthing when you're in your classroom daydreaming or you decide to daydream when you're alone in your room because then you know no one will disturb you. So there is an amount of control there where you can decide what you want to daydream of. You can choose a specific music to daydream with. So we're not yet sure about the controllability of that that is still uh, an unanswered question. Well, the the link with attention, I would have. I only daydream in things I don't want to be it, in that situation of. I won't do it when I'm in my room. I won't do it if I'm at home and I have my phone or whatever. I won't daydream. I mean, I will mindlessly scroll for hours and hours. But if I'm like in class or something daydreaming, I'll just stare at a blackboard and just kind of look like I'm paying attention. But if you ask me a question, I won't hear it. So I I wonder like if you just choose it like I mean the attention thing ADHD ADHD I would say is not it's not an it's attention deficient or a lack it's just our attention's focused on something else usually it has to interest us for us to be because there's the hyper focus side of it and everything like that as well too so I would think with maladaptive daydreaming if there are people who have ADHD and experience maladaptive daydreaming they're choosing certain points of where they want to go when it comes to daydreaming like if you're in a I don't know, something you don't want to be there for. Because if you watch a movie, I'm 100% tuned in, even if I don't like the movies, because there's just a, so much going on. So I, I think there is a variety, both for ADHD and maladaptive daydreamers in that. Um, uh, most people, when they describe their uh, difficulty with staying focused on a movie, for example, so if I ask a, a person with ADHD, they usually tell me that it's, um, maybe it's not interesting enough or maybe they have their mental to-do list on their head and they're finding it really hard to stay seated and not be worried about the things they must do later on or the things they did not complain on doing. Or they just feel, I don't know, like their mind is occupied with suddenly with different things. Well, if I speak with people with maladaptive daydreaming, 
it's not hard for them to focus, but their uh, imagining of the movie scenarios can be much more interesting in their own head, right? They can change the movie plot in any way they want to. I'm, I, I don't find people with ADD do that when they wander off a movie, okay? Unless they have both ADHD and maladaptive daydreaming, which I have to say that also happens. I do believe people can suffer from both uh, distress. Like they can be, on the one hand, very distracted by external stimuli, like from noises or conversations, or be or find it difficult to to organize tasks and activities, right? But at the same time, they can also be very tempted to go into their inner world and fantasize for a long time. So that happens, but I think this is a much more complicated situation where you suffer even more because you're not regulating your thoughts in any way. And this is very hard. How do you get, because I know ADHD is more prevalent with addiction issues, but how do you get someone to, like, I, I wouldn't say a treatment, but how do you get someone to stop doing the daydream so much only thing i could think of was i I don't know if i make my day better like if i have a bunch of stuff planned that i know i have to do or it's fun to do then i won't daydream at all but if i'm doing stuff like working or something like that mostly sit behind a front desk i just kind of you know tune out for you know an hour or so but um i would have to think like i mean obviously it can really hinder some people's lives and cause some serious issues with it but how can you do if you we we never really talked about daydreaming in a sense of it being ever bad, you know, just don't do that or something like that. We kind of swooped it away. So when you're talking about maladaptive daydreaming, I've said even maybe changing the name a little bit, it's a good name, but I just think there's a stigma behind just the daydreaming aspect that goes with it. But when you recognize someone doing it, what's a way that you could just find something to get their attention back onto this reality instead of spending so much time in there? Because once you go down that rabbit hole, especially with ADHD of hopping into a little fantasy and you really, really enjoy it and you keep going back to it and back to it and back to it, you're not only making it stronger, but you're also making it something that you need to start doing. And that's a really big problem. So if we are uh, talking about the uh, daydreaming rather than mind wandering, okay, if we speak about people who also have maladaptive daydreaming and ADHD. Mind wandering is just thinking about things that you're going to do later, right? Isn't that? Like if I have to go get gas in my car, then I'm thinking about, oh, I got to go get gas when I get off work and get groceries. That's mind wandering. So they're like uh, different, uh, like there is a, like different researchers define mind mind wandering in a different way. There are a group of researchers that define mind wandering, mind wandering as an umbrella term for a lot of thought patterns and others that define daydreaming quite uh, specifically, I go with the other group <laughs> who tends to identify mind wandering as a specific type of thought that is characterized by a spontaneous thoughts, not coherent, um, usually jump from one thing to another, unguided, um, where daydreams are fantastical images and stories that usually attend uh, un, uh, unrealistic or things that are unlikely to happen in real life, right? Like it can involve uh, fictional characters in real scenarios or real people in scenarios that wouldn't happen in real life. So if we are speaking about daydreaming uh, as an addiction, as a, as a behavioral addiction, uh, how how do you stop doing it? Uh, I don't know. There is no protocol yet for treating maladaptive daydreaming as it is not yet an official uh, diagnostic disor- disorder. But uh, I can assume that if you're um, trying to kind of regulate your thought, that might be a helpful way to try and not let your mind go off to the fantasy or kind to try to limit it. But I don't know how to how like what's the answer to that yet. I think this there's a lot of research to do to find out what can be most helpful for people regarding their daydreams. Uh, and I think that can be different from mind wandering because daydreams involve your emotional needs, right? We spoke about maladaptive daydreamer, uh, daydreaming of uh, emotional scenarios of being more accepted and more loved and being more successful. So there is emotional need for that. Like maybe I feel lonely and I want to feel more love or maybe I had a family that was 
not able to satisfy my emotional needs. So I'm think I'm daydreaming of the perfect family. So like there is an emotional aspect of it that I think we should um take under consideration when we think about how to help people with their maladaptive daydreaming. Is out of the number of people you interviewed, is there a certain age range that they all kind of fall in? Like is there a, a very low age compared to a high age, or is there just a medium of a certain particular group? So I think there's a bias because people uh, find my research through the internet and the older you get, I think the less time you spend on the internet or you're less likely to know how to use Facebook or Reddit or whatever. So I think there is a bias there. So I can say that people that are younger tend to have uh, more maladaptive uh, daydreaming. But in my studies, I usually have younger people that experience that, like in their 20s and 30s, because uh, I only uh, interviewed adults. Uh, but I also interviewed uh, older people, like 50 years old, 60 years old, that told me about their experience, and it wasn't easier for them. And feeling in the closet for so long was actually more distressful for, from being a young person that can search about it in the internet and find a lot of, uh, I don't know, comfort by knowing that other people also experience that. I would have to think it's probably multifactorial because what I was kind of heading at was the number, what if there was a particular age range that more people experience this form of daydreaming? Because I don't, with ADHD, I learned that like apparently your brain doesn't fully develop until like you're in your, I wouldn't say mid 30s, but early 30s. I came across that research and I've been told that before by an ADHD psychologist i think he was a psychologist um so that was interesting because i thought it was 21 or 20 in your 20s when your brain fully develops but there's like a maturity level that's kind of like different i guess which means all the stupid jokes i have kind of makes a little bit more sense now but i was wondering because the number of people in their 20s that have i wouldn't say uh, especially now maybe but have a little bit of a inner angst or something of like, what are they going to be, you know, trying to figure out that existential crisis moment. And then it's really easy to push those problems away. If you kind of go in your head and do the little fantasy thing or act it out in your head or do something, you could, doesn't have to always be a movie script could be life stuff. But then if you go to the older section of people that experience stuff, I mean, could that just be boredom as well too? You get stuck into your fantasies. I mean, a lot of older people tend to not have so close as friends as you did in high school. You think you start figuring that out in your 20s. So I'm sure it's multifactorial on that one. But I didn't know if you had any thoughts on everything I just said. Um. So um, like on the people- Call me I stupid. It's okay. I won't be offended. No, not at all. <laughs> this is so interesting to speak about. Like, um, thank you so much for the opportunity and asking so many interesting questions. Um. So when I interview people that uh, recognize their, themselves as having ADHD, Usually, uh, it is people uh, age 30 and over, um, and we have an average age of, I don't know, 35 or maybe more. And when I interview people with maladaptive daydreaming, it's, it's people much younger. But I think the reason is because they are more likely to be in social media and kind of hear about that through that, because you have maladaptive daydream uh, support groups through the Facebook and Reddit, and which is something that is more characterizing young people than older people to try to find uh, their uh, comfort with other people through social media. Um, and I don't think the maladaptive daydreaming uh, thing is because you're confused through your young, uh, uh, through being young, because most people uh, report that they started daydreaming in such a way since they were young kids. Okay, so like they say, like every child have an imagination and daydreams, right? But yeah, imaginary not friends. every, yeah, imaginary friend. That's completely normal. So I believe that not every child spends hours and on daydreaming while walking in their room back and forth. So that's a little different. Um, and most people with maladaptive daydreaming do tell me I was like that since I was very young, since I can remember myself. So I don't think it's necessarily young age related, like your to your twenties or something like that. See that to me, when you say that, I start thinking of social isolation. A lot of times, if you spend a lot of time alone, you kind of spend a lot of time with your thoughts. 
and that just becomes the normal routine. Like it doesn't mean that they're just people that just hate other people. I'm not saying that, but if you spend a lot of time by yourself, whether it's certain situations, I mean, some people are limited. If they're a kid, they only have a bike. They can't go to a friend's house. who might be a town over. So then they have to stay inside on the weekends and maybe their family's out or something like that. Like I was raised by two DJs. So it makes sense why I spent a lot of time with my thoughts when I was a kid or playing video games or something like that. But you mentioned social media. Can that be an aggressor or an, a catalyst to the creation of maladaptive daydreaming or just something like that? Like, I know there's people out there that see something go, oh, I have this. I hear it all the time whenever I mention I have ADHD and someone just goes, oh, I think I have a bit of that too. I'm like, fantastic. Great. We're friends. Cool. Um, but there's a lot of stuff when it comes to like maladaptive daydreaming where, like I said, I even question if I have that just because I can use it in particular moments, um, you know, like a cardio or something like that. But some of the stories I've seen, people are experiencing it on a way worse level than I have, which makes me question, do I, if, is there even significance in me saying that I have it if I just experience it in certain situations? So I'm curious if the social media thing is either a help or a hurt. Um, I don't know if social media is enhancing the, this phenomenon, but I can tell that the people I interviewed, they were very sincere about their experience. I don't think it, they, they have no motive to be, to make me think they have it and don't have it actually, because they didn't get any money or being interviewed I was only listening to them so I don't think there was like an incentive to lie about their experience or to think they have it even though they didn't usually people say like when I start asking about the amount of daydreaming like through the first question I can see in their eyes and in their answer that's they know I know <laughs> what we're going to speak about like finally someone is speaking about that about the fantasy things not about the depression, not about the anxiety, not about the attention difficulties, about the fantasies and the, their uh, effect on a person's life. So I don't think that the internet uh, made it uh, worse or inflate the rates of people characterizing themselves as maladaptive daydreamers. But I do think that you need to be careful not to diagnose yourself through Google, right? <laughs> this is very dangerous like every time you feel pain in your body it's like oh cancer so this is this is not a good way to diagnose yourself it's a way to gain more knowledge about things but I wouldn't say it's a good way to give yourself a diagnosis without consulting someone who is professional and I, I, I agree that many people use ADHD as kind of a I don't know like a term that def defines everything you do not in order which is definitely not the situation for people with ADHD. They do suffer a lot from it in a variety of areas of functioning. So I wouldn't say everybody who fails to give attention to something boring have ADHD also. Um, what, what I meant I, by the uh, AD, the thing about the maladaptive daydreaming, I wasn't saying people are doing it for attention to be like, I have maladaptive daydreaming, but sometimes you come across a video or something on social media and they're explaining maladaptive daydreaming, but it's not done properly. I've seen it with ADHD multiple times where like ADHD symptoms and then it's like depression, anxiety, and then it's like this and this. And I'm like, shit, everyone has depression. Like, I mean, a lot of people have it and experience it and don't have ADHD. Like if I hit my vape or something, I'll have a, I had someone who's an ADHD psychologist be like, you know, like you can be, are you addicted to those things? I'm a little bit concerned. I'm like, everyone in their twenties has either a vape in their pocket or two at home. I don't know, but it's not like an addictive thing. So I start going, it's not necessarily a misdiagnosis, but sometimes someone comes across something and it's a symptom or it's a subtype or it's something that goes along with a bigger thing. And they think it's that, well, I mean, there's plenty of other disorders out there that experience depression and things of that sort. So it might not be like, they're like, oh my God, I'm having this and I'm going to get attention for it. I'm, what I'm saying is they see it and they go, that could be me. Maybe that's what I have. And then you go down the long route until you end up figuring out, oh wait, I don't have that. That's just a different thing. That's what I meant. I it wasn't trying to discern anybody that had a experience i wanted to clarify that because that would make me rude as hell i don't want to be like that <laughs> so i think i think most people um like when they go into the the groups uh for maladaptive daydreaming like if they really suffer from it they will find it very quickly very similar to their experience and if they're not it will seem strange or unfamiliar or not really related to their experience but again, I think that also it is always important to consult someone who is expert in psychology or I don't know uh, in any other field of the of, of, of your mental health to to make sure that you're not 
just um i don't know taking uh labels for yourself that are not right and not going to help you eventually um so that is important what do you think about video games i feel like the number of people that probably get soaked into those video games like i could play video games for i mean it would feel like a whole day would just go by and I feel like, I don't know, like 10 minutes or something like that, you get sucked into them. I mean, that's the same thing you could explain about with some of these fantasies. Sometimes you get sucked right into it and then your whole day goes by. So I have to think about the number of people that probably could be daydreaming, but they have a video game, an Xbox or something like that, where they can actually just physically be able to move around a character and get a different whole experience. Much like watching a movie, except you're not dreaming different scenes about it. You're kind of just in it and you're able to actually move the people around. So it's more physical. But I think that is really important uh, as a way to kind of differentiate not from daydreaming from ADHD. Um, when you are hyper-focused on external thing like a video game, it is external thing. It's not something that you imagine inside your head, right? You're spending hours and on on external something that, uh, uh, that is very interesting for you. While for people with maladaptive daydreaming, their attention is focused inwards toward their inner uh, reality, not their surrounding things. Like they won't watch a movie for hours because they can have a much better movie in their own head. They can just close their eyes and start imagining for a long time. So this is kind of also an aspect that I think might be differentiating ADHD from other daydreaming. The focus is 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 inwards rather than outwards. So that's definitely different. Maybe the shared mechanism is the fact that it is addictive, that you spend doing it and it's fun and it's enjoyable. So you do it more and more, even though it's not very helpful to promote you in your real life. Maybe that can be the common factor, but they are essentially different when you're focusing about something in your external reality than in your inner reality. So with maladaptive daydreaming, they can't get sucked into video games as much as they can get sucked into their own fantasies. But with ADHD, it kind of seems like if the video game won't interest me or if it's not fun anymore, I can put it down and then I'll go back into my fantasy and get 100% sucked into that. ADHD is so weird because it's that masking thing that I didn't know about. Like there'd be certain ways I'll have to be like, this is how I'm going to act in public today so I don't seem like a nut job. And then next thing you know, you start figuring out that's just I don't know. I'm kind of dumbing down my personality, like people who actually know me and experience me. I'm much like how I am on the show and everything like that. But work, I can't do that. I can't be all over the place on that. So maladaptive daydreaming, it's not like with ADHD. So you can't just get sucked into a video game like I could. And then if that video game bores me, I could just tune it out and go into the fantasy. It's just which one's going to give me the more stimulant, which one's going to make me feel something more. Sometimes video games will, or sometimes the daydream is a lot better than playing a game where I could do whatever I wanted in it. So I think like the, the instinct or like the tendency in maladaptive daydreaming is not towards the gaming, but more towards imagination. Um, while in ADHD, I think that's more towards the out things in your reality. Like it's a movie, it's a game, it's something external. And if you do exhibit maladaptive daydreaming in ADHD, it can be both, which can be really hard to find yourself concentrating on what you really have to do. But I think people with maladaptive daydream usually uh, tells me when I interview them that they they won't even go to to playing because they have they can do much more interesting things in their own head. They can imagine playing in whatever they want to uh, in their mind, and they're not. Um, it, it's not restricted to the game's rules, right? They can make the rules themselves. So they are much more alert to be uh, imagining things they want to happen or interesting for them happening or kind of have new experiences that they, they know they can never have in their real life. To be honest, that's how I rationalize like social situations. I don't want to go to a bar and spend money. I just go, I'll just go, I'll just have the scenario go play in my head or something like that. It's cheaper to stay at home anyway, but I don't know. That might not be the same exact thing. No, but the question is, do you usually prefer to stay at home and daydream than actually engage in social activities? If you find yourself not doing, not having social life because you rather have them in your own imagination, then we have to stop and think about it for a minute. How much is that impairing your social life? Because 
when we are thinking of psychopathology, we're saying, is that hindering my functioning in different areas? And is that stressful for me, right? If it's not stressful, if I only enjoy daydreaming, it's not affecting any important area of functioning, then it wouldn't be maladaptive. It will be daydreaming, and that's great. But the minute I start to not do things because I rather daydream, I don't do my work as well as I could if I weren't daydreaming, I'm procrastinating, I'm less efficient, I have a very big gap between how I wish to be as a worker and how I really am. The moment I don't go to a date and I'm not looking for a relationship because I'm having such a hard time to, to bear the anxiety of looking for a partner, and I do it only in my daydreams and then stay really lonely, then I need to rethink about it. Is that adaptive or not? And it sounds like it's not. Did any of the people you interviewed had coping strategies or a way that they made it however many years to where they're at now of just making sure people didn't realize it was something something that was going on? I'm sure people see everybody kind of tune out for, I mean, that's pretty common, but when it comes to the maladaptive daydreaming side, how do you go say 50 years without anyone asking a question if there's something going on with them? So I think people with maladaptive daydreaming know really well how to mask it while they're doing it. Um, they learned over the years how to mask it. So they won't be looking weird in some way. Um, and I think many people who who kept on it as a secret uh, had to pay a really high price for being lonely because of that. Um, that's that's the very adverse outcome of having this secret that you're very lonely you have no, when you have no one to share your such an important aspect of your life. And that's really hard. Um, the strategies are just to do it when you're alone and not tell people what you're really doing, I think. Maybe telling people that you're reading, you're watching a movie, you have work to do. I don't know. Um, but you use different things to kind of mask it and not let other people know about it. And sometimes people feel even embarrassed to tell about that in therapy. So they just don't speak about that as they, or sometimes they think this is might be secondary and not that important. Maybe it's the other things that are important and they just don't speak about it. What about mindfulness, maladaptive daydreaming? Were you able to do it in specific moments? Like you set out a certain amount of time a day to be able to do, still do it. Like if I have to think someone that's doing it for however many years, every single day in certain moments, that they, they could tr slowly try and wean themselves back. I don't, I don't think there's really a way to cut someone cold turkey from going inside their own head and exploring and creating a fantasy. But making that person responsible for cutting themselves out a little slice of time to do this type thing and then finding a way to slowly bring that down a little bit. I don't think it's necessarily, like I said, the daydreaming stuff, I think that's good, but I don't, the maladaptive part, the part that becomes very bad, you know, the, the stuff that hinders your own life, that's where like the line is. So I'm just curious, like not to cut out daydreaming entirely, but slowly reduce it from an extreme point to bringing it down to a more normal point where it's, yeah, that's okay. If you're in your head for five minutes or something like that, doing something, and then, you know, you come back to reality, but setting aside time. I mean, have you thought about that at all? Um, so um, my study is not focused on treatment. Uh, unfortunately, that's out of my scope of, uh, of research because um, there is only some work you can do in your PhD. Uh, but I think it is really important to, to have studies on that, exactly on that. How can you control your daydreams pattern much more? How can you uh, have this part of your life uh, not vanished, but controlled in a way that's not going to impair your functioning and not going to cause you distress? So I don't know how to do it, but I think that in order to find a solution to a problem, to a problem, you first know, have to know how to define the problem at the first place, right? If you don't know how to define the problem, how can you solve it? So, we need to understand maladaptive daydreaming as a contract construct, and then I think it will be much easier to find solutions, or much smarter to find solutions once we understand it more. Has your perspective changed from when you first joined um, with Ellie Sommer? compared to what you've known now about maladaptive daydreaming? Um, I think like uh, at the beginning, I was just reading about it. 
and it sounds like like something that I can't really envision in my head how a person that have maldapid daydreaming will look like or uh, what will he describe to me and then when I met people it suddenly became real and I got a much uh, much more much deeper understanding of that um, it changed in a way that I feel that is real and I cannot dismiss it I do sometimes find myself is that um do we know everything no we don't there are things that i don't understand yet how how is that possible how can i explain that i find myself asking a lot of questions but i'm not suspicious towards the term daydreaming. and i think what ellie did was great because he gave a name to an experience a lot of people have and that is important like it's validation which is something very important as therapists to do and people are having maladaptive daydreaming uh, internet groups uh, opening, they're opening that themselves. It's not like the psychologic society tell them, this is what you have and you need to be, to have help for that. People are telling, are contacting Ellie and Yates by themselves, asking them to help them and, and reach out to them. So I think this is a very important thing that Ellie did. I know a lot of stuff doesn't have like either the proper study done about maladaptive daydreaming or something. There's like an area that hasn't been touched or has, maybe doesn't have enough evidence on it. But I think that only comes with more awareness on it and more acceptance of that this is something because then, I mean, think about it. When you were starting out in maladaptive daydreaming, kid could look up maladaptive daydreaming on their phone. Maybe they get a couple articles or get a couple things of work and then compared to what they can do now, like that's how I try and think of why I think it's so important to me to just learn more about it is because I understand the experience aspect, but I'm talking about like, there's a child out there that's kind of like seven years old on their phone or something like that. Cause they have a cell phone and how many studies are going to be to be able to, you know, come across that they might have this certain thing. And be able to understand themselves a little bit more. That's why I think it's an important thing that I hopefully will get accepted as DSM criteria at some point. Um, I mean, do you, besides groups, I know there's a giant forum about this as well, too, where a lot of people share stories and experiences. But do you see a lot more of the academic committee through your perspective that is now starting to accept it more? Or do you still find that hesitancy? Um, like. Uh, with my colleagues, when I told them about my thesis, uh, they were like, wow, I think I met someone with that. So people were starting to be interested, but it takes time to be able to, to like, you need an interpersonal relationship, I think, at the beginning to help people be more open about it. But I'm sure that uh, as time goes by, it will uh, spread and <laughs> people will start read about it and might be interested and it's also okay to criticize that you know because we learn from criticism if someone criticizes me with a question it means that I have to do more study myself and give and find more answers and that's a good thing so I'm not interesting only with other researchers saying I'm right I'm like having a criticism is a good thing in that aspect it makes me work harder so that's also important well, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show about it um, and, you know, engage me in all types of different areas of a maladaptive daydreaming. Uh, but is there a place where people can find your links and then also any studies or anything that you have links to or anybody else's work that you'd like to promote as well, too? Yeah, sure. So um, right now uh, I have one study that is still running and we are looking for participants to participate. Um, so you can find my study links on the Software Dudex website. And um, I'm recruiting people for my study, and I would be very happy if people that are listening to your podcast will uh, subscribe to my study and will help me uh, gain more understanding of maladaptive daydreaming and ADHD. Uh, that would be great. Do I fall in the category for that? Because I'll sign up if I, if it if it's something like that. Like I said, I might have maladaptive daydreaming, but I sure as hell have ADHD. I can tell you that one. We'll have to do an interview for that, but um, I'm looking not only for people with maladaptive daydreaming and ADHD, also people who don't have any of these, but are interested in psychology and understanding their different thought patterns. So I'm also looking for a participant as a control group. So everyone who is interested is welcome to participate. I'll make sure I link those links in the description so people will be able to find it. 
participate as well too. Do you have a Twitter or anything like that? Any social medias? Oh, I'm so old <laughs> in my mind. Like I'm, I don't even have an Instagram. That's how. Look, it's uh, a good thing. It's not necessarily a good, good one. I just have to ask. <laughs> um, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Facebook, and I can also uh, give you my email address. So people who want to find out more about that can also email me uh, if they wish to do so, and I can explain more about my studies and what I'm studying or. Uh, answer their questions regarding study participation. Awesome. And I'll make sure I link those in the description. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.